0: Welcome to church. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, We're going to be in Mark 14 this morning, so you can go ahead and and be turning there. Uh, I want to give you all an update. Over the weekend, several of us, myself and Clint and and the deacons at King's Cross, were able to go on a a little leadership retreat. Many of you all knew that. Thank you for praying for us. Uh, It was a really encouraging and refreshing time for me. Uh, and I think for our group, a time where we uh, we prayed together and we spent time in God's Word, and really the hope was that that we would recenter ourselves on this vision of a church that is planted with deep, deep roots in the gospel, that that grows up into this sturdy trunk of. Worship of God and obedience to God and love of other people and that bears fruit in our community, in our city, uh, through sharing the gospel, evangelism, making disciples and doing good to the people around us. We know that uh, we're almost a year into this church plant now and and some of the energy of the early months has waned uh, and we're in in rhythms and routines now. But that vision of a a Christ-centered church for East Nashville has not gone anywhere uh, and we want to continue to pursue it. In the months to come. And at the core of all of that is our understanding of the Word of God. The written Word of God the Father, the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is all about Jesus Christ. And that is the soil in which we are planted. If we're going to grow up to be this healthy, fruit bearing tree, we need to draw all of our nutrients from. God's Word. And so when we come to church, we don't just put somebody up here, whether myself or, or somebody else, to just share ideas and thoughts that we have on this or that. We want to actually open up God's Word and ask God, by His Spirit, to speak to us through what He has spoken. And so we've been doing that through the Gospel of Mark uh, all the way since back at the beginning in May, with a couple short breaks. And now we're coming to the end. So today, be in Mark chapter 14. Again, turn there in your Bibles with me. And I will read verses 12 through 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? He sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed, and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve. "'the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. "'For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, "'but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. "'It would have been better for him if he had not been born. "'As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, "'and gave it to them, and said, "'Take it, this is my body. "'Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, "'he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. "'And he said to them, "'This is my blood of the covenant, "'which is poured out for many.' Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, God's people are in bad shape. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God made this promise, covenant with this man Abraham, promised to be with him and to be with all of his offspring, to bless them, to cause them to multiply, to give them a land. And throughout Genesis, all of that's happening. And in fact, toward the end of Genesis, God makes miraculous provision for his people in advance to be prepared for a famine. He sends Joseph, one of the offspring of Abraham, ahead of his people to Egypt. He raises him up to be the second highest in command in all of Egypt. And he tells Joseph through a dream that a famine's coming. And he tells him what to do to prepare for it. So when the famine comes, Egypt has all these stockpiles of food. And Abraham's offspring, the people of God, are able to go to Egypt and be taken care of. So all throughout Genesis, God is is providing for his people. They're multiplying, they're growing, they're thriving. But then the first chapter of Exodus says, "...a new king who did not know Joseph came to power." And this king was scared of the Israelites. He saw how rapidly they were growing in number and strength, so he enslaved them. He oppressed them. He killed their newborn sons. He gave them impossible tasks. And they felt like they had been completely abandoned by God. But they cried out to God. And chapter 2 says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with them. God saw the Israelites. And God knew. And God worked to rescue his enslaved people. He raised up a leader named Moses. Moses opposed the Egyptian king, told him to let his people go. And when he didn't do it, God sent plagues against Egypt, nine plagues, one after the next. And each time, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, still wouldn't let the people go. And so finally, God promises to send the worst plague yet, the death of all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. But to his people, the Israelites, God gave a special way of escape he told them if you sacrifice a lamb and you take its blood and you put it over the doorpost of your house when the angel of death visits the land of egypt he will pass over you and your people will be spared from death and it happened just as god said egypt still refused to repent so the angel of death came but he passed over the israelites god spared his people from death and the cry of anguish and despair in egypt was so great But the people not only finally let the Israelites go, they said, Please get out of here as fast as you can, and here, take all our stuff with you as you go. And God led them through the wilderness, parted the waters of the Red Sea sent them away from Egypt, and freed them. But God didn't just spare them from death and free them from slavery. He also entered into a new covenant with them. He formed them into a people and a nation that would have his special blessing. He would be their God and they would be their people. He would bless them, bless those who bless them, curse those who curse them, and bless the whole world through them. God spared Israel from death, freed them from slavery, and formed them into a covenant people. If you don't have that story... In the back of your mind, you're going to have a really hard time understanding what's going on in Mark chapter 14. It's Passover week. That's why Jesus and his disciples and as many as 100,000 other people have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to remember, as they did every year, the Passover. God sparing his people from death, freeing them from slavery, and forming them into a new people. At this point, it's Thursday evening. Friday is the day that the people of Israel will reenact the Passover by sacrificing a lamb for their Passover meal. Now you might notice the text said this is the day that the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And it's important to remember when you read the Bible that the Jewish day begins with the evening. So it's evening time, now it's night time. So it's the beginning of the day when the lambs will be sacrificed. And it seems that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples a Passover meal a night early they're, they're sacrificing the lamb the same day as everybody else, but they're, they're observing the meal, eating the meal a day early. And the reason is because on Passover itself, there will be another lamb who is sacrificed. Only it's not a woolly, white, four-legged animal. It is Jesus himself. Jesus and his disciples will leave this upper room. They'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas will sneak away and go and get the guards to come and arrest Jesus. They'll put him on trial early in the morning. He'll be nailed to a cross from which he will hang until the afternoon, at which point he will cry out, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But before all that, they eat a Passover meal, during which they reenact, and during which Jesus radically reinterprets the Passover for them. This, this reinterpretation happens when they come to the bread and the cup, a portion of the meal during which the host of the meal, which Jesus is serving as here, was to give explanatory remarks. So the people eating the meal would ask, why do we eat this unleavened bread? And the host would point to the past and say, because our fathers were redeemed from Egypt. But Jesus changes the symbolism of the meal. He points not backwards to God's deliverance of Israel from slavery, but he points to the present and to the immediate future and the greater exodus that he is going to accomplish on the cross. Take this, Jesus says, this bread, this is my body. And he gives them the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. While all the implications of this will have to be worked out down the road, the central thrust is clear even to the disciples at the time. Namely, Jesus is going to die and his death is going to benefit us in some way. And not only that, but he says, there will be a time when we share this meal again, when we drink the wine new in the kingdom of God. The death of Jesus, the the breaking of his body and shedding of his blood is going to secure the kingdom of God that he's been talking about since Mark chapter one. Against this backdrop of the Passover, it becomes clear that what Jesus is saying is, I am the new Passover lamb, and God is going to accomplish through me all the things that he accomplished for his people Israel in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God passed over his people, sparing them from death. And through Jesus, God likewise spares his people from death. We are all careening toward death. How's that for an uplifting first point of the sermon? But if you're like most Americans, you, you probably don't think about that very often. David Fideller is an author and PhD in philosophy He says the United States has accomplished a world-class disappearing act when it comes to keeping older adults and any other reminders of death out of sight and out of mind. With its shiny glass and steel buildings, shopping malls, and spread out suburbs, the American landscape has been sterilized and artificially cleaned up in such a way that extremely old people are rarely seen on public display. We could add to his comments the fact that there is a $43 billion anti-aging industry in the United States. For what it's worth, that's two-thirds of the global industry. So two-thirds of the global anti-aging industry is right here in the United States. We could also add the the cloistered nature of cemeteries, of retirement homes. We could point to any number of factors as evidence that the U.S. works really, really hard to ignore the reality of death. Why? Why? Because we're terrified of it. Which, by the way, I think this is part of the reason that the pandemic was so shocking to our collective psyche. We had managed to completely remove death from our daily thoughts. And all of a sudden, there's this strange virus that's killing people we know or people who we know know. And we're afraid that we might be next. Some people, maybe bolder, stronger nerves perhaps, try to confront the fear of death by treating it as just a natural thing. Uh, Death is the most natural part of life, people will say. This is the ancient Stoic response. Stoic philosophy was obsessed with with escaping the fear of death. Death, said Epictetus, who was a a Greek philosopher, said, uh, Death is only a scary mask. Take it off and see. It doesn't bite. It's It's the master fear. It's the greatest fear. But they said it can be overcome, in part by remembering it, by thinking about it every day. They said, Kiss your children goodnight, And remind yourself that they may die tomorrow. The death of Socrates, another ancient philosopher, famously embodied this fearlessness. Socrates was arrested on false charges. And, and tried and, and sentenced to death, but he was given a time where he could spend several days with his students, his, his disciples beforehand. And he rebuked them over and over for their, uh, so, their, their fear about his death. They were so distraught that he was going to die, and he rebuked them for this. And finally, when the last day came, he picked up a, a poisoned cup and calmly put it to his lips and drank it to the dregs and peacefully died. Modern Western people are terrified of death, so we try to ignore it. The Stoics naturalize death, so they won't fear it. Who's right? The Christian view has something unique to offer. Christians agree with modern Western people that death is horrifying. The reason that death terrifies you is because it's terrifying, and you shouldn't deny that. The Stoics are wrong. Death is not natural. You know, if you've had a loved one die, that there's nothing natural about death. It's the most unnatural thing that we could ever experience. But then the Christian view turns around and says we don't need to ignore it. We don't even need to fear it. The Stoics are right. We can face death without being afraid of anything. How is that possible? How is it possible that death is the most terrifying thing, but that we don't have to be terrified of it? Because death passes over those who are covered with the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ says, I am the true and better Passover lamb. And just as the angel of death passed over the people whose homes were marked with the blood of the lamb, so death passes over those who are covered with Christ's blood. Yes, we will still die physically. But Jesus is able to say in the Gospel of John, whoever believes in me, even though he dies, will live. How does that work? It works because we don't stay dead. Because even after our our bodies die, our souls continue. And then one day when Christ returns to make all things new, our bodies are raised up from the ground and reunited to our souls. And we live forever in indestructible new bodies. You say, how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus died for us. And his death as the Passover lamb was his means of conquering death. Hebrews 2 says the Son of God took on human nature so that he might die and through his death might free all those who were bound all their lives by the fear of death. Jesus has taken the sting out of death. We can be honest about it. We should be. We don't need to lie about it. We don't need to to pretend it's natural when it's not. But we, unique of all people, can be honest about death and still not be afraid of it. Through Jesus, God spares us from death. And second. Through Jesus, God frees us from slavery. Is human nature good? Some people would say yes. That's the popular view today. Uh, I was doing a little research this week and an uh, article, I can't remember what website it was on, it was just kind of a contemporary news website, it said, Breaking news, humans are basically good. I thought that's interesting. It's not the kind of thing you think of as breaking news. Um, But that is the popular view today, that people are basically good, and therefore whatever desires, longings, impulses you have are good. You should express them to the world through your actions. But that's actually a very new view in terms of human history. Uh, Historically, most traditional and ancient societies have said that, that we are not naturally good. We are basically bad and evil and selfish, and thus your desires and impulses shouldn't be expressed. They should be repressed. Again, which is it? I think Christianity again offers something unique. Christianity says that your human nature is good, but enslaved. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, every day he creates and he says, It's good. He makes the sun and moon and stars, the dry land and the water, and he looks at them all and he says, It's good. And then he gets to the final day, the crown glory of his creation, human beings, and he looks at them and he says, It's very good. He says, That's the best thing I've made. A lot of us come from a a theological background that emphasizes the sinfulness of humanity, traditions that emphasize our total and complete inability to save ourselves, our absolute need for God to show us grace and mercy, and that's right and good. That was in our confession of sin this morning. But sometimes we need to be reminded that your badness is not your starting point, that your sin is actually not the most fundamental and essential thing about you. God does not create things that are bad. He created human nature and he created it not only good, but very good. But does that mean that we need to all express every desire and inclination of the heart? No. In fact, fast forward from chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1, which says that humanity is very good, to Genesis chapter 6. And God looks into the human heart and sees that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time. That's like th- every nothing and all the time that you could not be more absolute than that what happened how did things get so bad human nature became enslaved it became enslaved by a much harsher master than egypt it became enslaved by sin and that slavery happened at the level of the human heart at the level of desire which means that we desire bad things So in reality, the question is not whether we should express our desires or whether we should repress them. The reality is you you can't even desire good things by your nature. What you need is for your desires to be freed so that you can actually desire the right things. And that's what happens through the gospel. When you follow Jesus, first of all, you're freed From slavery to sin, and then as you follow him, you're conformed to his image by by the Holy Spirit. You learn which desires do I need to express and which ones do I need to repress. Which desires are of the old enslaved self that I need to say goodbye to, and which desires are coming from God. After the people were spared by the Passover, they were freed through the Exodus, and we in Christ are spared from death and freed from slavery to sin. Every person in here, you can be freed from sin. First of all, you can be freed from its penalty, which is ultimately death, because as we said, Jesus already paid that penalty for you. But not only that, you can be freed from its power. You may think, as a Christian, you know, I know I don't have to pay the penalty of sin anymore, but I still can't escape its power in my life. That's not true. Paul says in Romans 6, Do not let sin reign in your body and obey its desires. Don't let sin have power over you. It doesn't have to. Sin, he says, will not rule over you. You have been freed from the penalty of sin, and and you are more and more, as you're being conformed to the image of Christ, being freed from the power of sin. And one day, you will be freed even from its presence. When you enter into glory, and you look high and low, left and right, sin will be nowhere to be found. In your life, in anybody else's life, it will be completely gone. Through Jesus, the Passover lamb, God spares us from death. God frees us from slavery to sin, and God forms us into his covenant people. What's the most powerful thing that you've ever seen? Maybe it's some remarkable natural wonder. Maybe it was one of the crazy storms that rolls through Nashville a few times a year now. Maybe it was your, your beautiful wife or strikingly handsome husband at the other end of the aisle on your wedding day. Maybe it was the birth of a child. What do these experiences do in us? They create this this remarkable combination of deep happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction on the one hand, and fear and trembling on the other hand. All mixed together, right? We call this awe. And these experiences, these moments of awe are so remarkable that they leave us wanting more. We wish we could bottle up that experience and tap into it. Whenever we want to. And, and for some people, it can be so thrilling that they spend all their days, their money, their energy, their whole lives trying to recapture these moments of awe. But you know, if you've ever done that, you can't just produce these things. Like you, you can't just dial them up on demand. You can't manufacture moments of real awe. You can spend your life chasing them, right, with expensive vacations, lavish houses, one romantic encounter after the next. But if you live your life chasing thrills, you end up settling for a lot of cheap imitations, What if I told you that even the real things, even the realest moments of awe and wonder that we experience in this life are actually only markers that are meant to point to something even more real? What if even the real moments of awe that we experience are just pointing to the realest thing, which is God Himself? God is the true source of all joy and happiness and satisfaction. He is ultimate beauty and goodness and truth. He is the true source of all. And in all our thrill seeking, all our memory making, all our experience pursuing, what we really want more than anything else, whether we know it or not, is to see God. But the problem is we can't. We can't see Him and live, at least. What's the most powerful thing in our galaxy? It's the sun. It's more than 92 million miles away and we still can't even look at it without it burning our eyes out. It's too powerful. And if we were even a little bit closer to it than we are, we would be unable to survive. And God is infinitely more powerful than the sun. The radiance of his glory is infinitely brighter. The light of his purity is infinitely more blinding. The heat of his holiness is infinitely hotter. And in many places, the Bible explicitly says, You cannot see God and live. He is too glorious, too pure, too holy. There's this interesting story in the book of Exodus. And it's a story that Jesus directly quotes here. This is what I'm getting at. Uh, Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, This is my blood of the covenant. In Exodus 24, When God has already spared his people from death, he's already freed them from slavery, he calls them up on a mountain where he's been meeting with Moses, who's the leader, the the mediator of God's people. And he tells Moses to sacrifice an animal and to splatter half of the blood on the people. And Exodus 24.8 says, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. God is remaking with Israel the people who he spared from death and freed from slavery, the covenant he made with their father Abraham to bless them, to bless those who bless them, to curse those who curse them, to be their God. And the splattering of the blood is the formal ceremony that makes them his covenant people. And then this crazy thing happens. In the very next verse, it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And God did not harm them. They saw him and they ate and drank. What? They saw the God that you can't see and live. They saw him and they weren't harmed. They traveled to the sun and it did not burn them. How is this possible? When the people were splattered with the blood, they became God's covenant people. And within the covenant, they would only receive God's love, his mercy, his kindness. Their sins were removed. Their lack of purity, their lack of holiness, their uncleanness was all removed so that they could come into the presence of the perfectly pure and holy and righteous one and not be harmed, but eat and drink. And now... Hundreds of years later at the Passover meal Jesus says this is my blood of the covenant. It is my blood that establishes this new covenant between you and God. I am going to be sacrificed and when you are splattered with my blood you can see God and not be harmed. His holiness, his purity, the Bright and shining, blinding light will not harm you. You will only experience his love and mercy and kindness and goodness. That is everything that you have ever wanted. Every moment of awe in your life is pointed to that. Every moment of joy and satisfaction, mixed with fear and trembling, that you've tried to chase down and bottled up, is found in God, and God can be yours through Christ if you are covered with his blood so that raises the question doesn't it are you covered with the blood of christ what does that mean how how can that happen the new testament letter first peter opens up with peter addressing his audience as those chosen according to the foreknowledge of god the father through the sanctifying work of the spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of christ later in the chapter he says you were redeemed with the precious blood of christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And he says, through him you believe in God. How can you be sprinkled with the blood of Christ? Through faith. Do you believe in God through Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? That he really is the son of the living God, the divine human king of God's kingdom? Do you believe that he lived the life that you failed to live? And I don't just mean, do you believe that in general he came to live the life that humanity failed to live? I mean, do you believe that he lived the life that you failed to live? And do you believe that he died for you? Again, not just that he died to to set an example or that he died for humanity in general, but that he went up on the cross and he had your name on his heart and in his mind, had your face in his mind when he went to the cross. Do you believe that? And are you banking everything on it? We often sing here the old hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, and it says, This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. For my pardon, this my plea. For my cleansing, this I see nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not my Christian parents, not my good works, not my social and cultural awareness, not my conservatism or my progressivism, not my beauty or strength or lack thereof, not my morality. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you believe that? Friend, Jesus died for you according to the eternal plan of God the Father. And you must must appropriate it. You must take it. You must take hold of it. You have to, to take the bread that he offered, his body, and you have to take the cup, his blood, and you have to eat and drink them by faith. You have to believe in his body and his blood. And if you are covered with the blood of Christ, you can see God. You can be in his presence and not be harmed. We can together as his covenant people. Christian, do not settle for a drab and boring life. Do not settle for a cheap imitation of Of the real thing, a life of joy and happiness and satisfaction and content, a a life that is quite literally awesome, is available to you through Christ now. I don't mean you can see God after you die and go to heaven. I mean in a very real sense, right now in this life, you can see God. That is available to us. Let's chase it. Like, let's be a church that chases that thrill together. That's what this is all about. Let's pursue more of God together. In Exodus 24, the people not only saw God, they ate a meal in his presence. At the Last Supper, in Mark 14, Jesus' disciples ate a meal in his presence. And now, every week, we come to the Lord's table to eat a meal in his presence. He was there physically, bodily with the disciples. He's here spiritually now with us 2,000 years later. Together as his covenant people, those who have been sprinkled by his blood, baptized into his body by grace through faith, we come to the table to feast with one another and with the Lord. What does that mean? It means we should approach this table solemnly, yes, really and spiritually and truly, to to take this bread and cup is to participate in the body and blood of Christ. You don't do that willy-nilly. You don't do that without regard to how you've been living before God. You don't do that without regard to his body of Christ in the church. You don't do it without regard to God himself. So we eat the meal seriously. But this also means that we should approach this table joyfully. This is a covenant celebration. Celebration. Every time we come to the table, we are remembering and reenacting the reality that we get to enter into the presence of God Almighty without fear. And we get to look forward to the time when Jesus will, as he says here, drink this wine anew in the kingdom of God bodily with us in the new heavens and the new earth. As we come to this table today and each week, we look back to that day 2,000 years ago. And we live in the right now reality of Christ's spiritual presence with us in the room as we eat and drink by faith together. And we look ahead to eating and drinking with him and with all the saints across time and space when all things have been made new.